You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 21st of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, are Israel and Hamas on the verge of a truce agreement? The US Defence Secretary makes a surprise visit to Kyiv as it marks an important anniversary. It's 10 years since Ukraine's Revolution of Dignity, or Euromaidan. Then we'll check in on Taiwan's elections as it too fights to keep its independence. Plus the films vying for glory at the 36th European Film Awards in Berlin. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. The leader of Hamas says the group is close to reaching a truce agreement with Israel, raising hopes of a pause in hostilities in Gaza that could see hostages freed. Israel has not yet commented, but earlier Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said his country would not stop fighting until hostages are brought home. A deal could see Hamas returning hostages in exchange for Israel releasing jailed Palestinians, according to the AFP news agency and Al Jazeera. Lina Khatib is director of the Middle East Institute at London School of Oriental and African Studies. Lena, thank you for joining us. Firstly, uh, what is the latest on this potential deal? Well, the latest is that uh, the US uh, says it is uh, near. Uh, The Hamas leader based in Qatar uh, has also said uh, uh, it is near. We haven't yet heard uh, confirmation from Israel, but so far the signs Point to uh, at least uh, limited cessation and hostilities and the release of a number of hostages, both by Hamas and Israel. And the International Committee of the Red Cross, which has helped facilitate previous deals, uh, has been meeting Hamas leaders in Qatar. How important have organisations like the Red Cross uh, and also other governments been? And, and what's Qatar's role exactly been in these negotiations? Uh, It's very important for uh, neutral stakeholders like the international community of the Red Cross to be involved because uh, these actors will have trust from uh, all actors basically in this this conflict. But here we have to be mindful that the president of the international community of the Red Cross met with Hamas's leader Ismail Haniyeh in Qatar. That leader is uh, based in Qatar uh, normally. And this shows us the importance of uh, Qatar in this uh, negotiation, because without Qatar's mediation, uh, we would not have had a platform for the international community of the Red Cross to meet uh, with this leader of Hamas. Qatar sees its contribution in this conflict to be uh, as a mediator that can uh, be a communication channel between Israel and Hamas, And uh, this, of course, means bolstering uh, the political standing of Qatar in the Middle East because of its role as as mediator. And what do you think both sides will want from this and what will be acceptable to their populations? 
Um, in the first instance, what everyone is looking forward to on the uh, Palestinian side is a truce. Uh, so far, the uh, estimates are that uh, there could be a truce of, of four days or five days. Uh, and as part of this truce, uh, Israel would uh, lessen uh, its operations in southern Gaza. And meanwhile, uh, there would be a release of uh, around 50, perhaps up to 100 uh, civilians uh, who are Israeli, as well as foreign hostages who are held by Hamas. And in exchange, uh, Israel would release uh, around 300, perhaps, Palestinians from uh, Israeli jails. So that's what everyone is looking forward to in the immediate term. Uh, of course, in the long term, the hope is that this could be the first step towards a longer term ceasefire and a reinvigoration of a political process uh, that would end this conflict. Do you think that the state that the conflict is in now with Gaza City so uh, decimated uh, by Israel's retaliation for that awful uh, attack uh, that really the only thing left to do now by the Palestinian leadership uh, and the Israeli government as well, given the pressures from their own side, is to re-engage with that political process and try and get uh, two-state solution talks back up and running? I mean, eventually, this is the only way to end the conflict. The problem right now is that there is still no political will on part of Israel to engage in this kind of diplomatic move because they say that they have not yet achieved their military objectives in Gaza and they are saying this is why they are against a ceasefire. So here we have an agreement on short-term uh, cessation of hostilities, uh, humanitarian pauses, truces. They're using all these different words. They're not using the word ceasefire because they're saying a ceasefire means paving the way for political negotiations and they're not there yet. But ultimately, this is the only way to end this conflict once and for all. And in terms of uh, the ceasefire, what would that mean for aid operations and also potentially for Palestinians uh, to try to get out of the territory if they want to and, and cross into Egypt? Um, I mean, here we have to be careful. Uh, first, you, you said ceasefire. As, as the political entities involved in this conflict define it, a ceasefire is... Apologies, I meant truce, a, sorry, yes. Oh, okay, yeah, because these are two different dynamics. If, if we're talking about the truces uh, that are being discussed right now, uh, these will allow uh, some uh, injured people uh, to get uh, humanitarian aid, would, would allow humanitarian aid and fuel... Uh, to enter Gaza uh, at a level that is uh, more adequate than the bare minimum uh, that is present right now. Uh, the issue of people crossing into Egypt remains a bit contentious because Egypt is still worried about large numbers of Palestinians uh, eventually being moved uh, to uh, Egypt in a, in a displacement scenario under the guise of humanitarian uh, alleviation. So we Everyone is really careful about, about exactly how that would be conducted. However, there's no denying that everyone in Gaza needs a breather. Uh, people are facing hunger. They're facing the cold of winter. They're facing lack of shelter, uh, the, the lack of basic needs. Uh, no medical uh, uh, kind of facilities exist uh, adequately. And, and all this is a huge humanitarian catastrophe 
and a truth or however the world wants to call it is very much urgent. And finally, on the Israeli side for Benjamin Netanyahu, he's facing severe criticism at home, not just for uh, letting Israel's guard down for the initial attack, but also how he's handled the hostage situation over the past few weeks. Uh, Do you think uh, that he's finally sort of realised how important it is now to get those hostages back to potentially try and save himself? Or is he really done for now in office once this main stage of the conflict uh, and this initial stage of the conflict is over? Um, Of course, unfortunately, uh, hostages are being used as political tools by both sides, by Hamas and by Israel. When it comes to uh, Netanyahu, it is in his interest for the hostages to be released as soon as possible because there is growing criticism inside Israel about Netanyahu's own performance uh, in this conflict, the longer uh, time passes, the more people worry about their loved ones uh, who are held hostage by Hamas and the greater responsibility they put on Netanyahu, because if he doesn't secure their release, this will be seen as a failure on his part. So for him to gain politically, he has to address the issue of the hostages. He can't just dismiss it. But no matter what, I think once this conflict is uh, over militarily, uh, political accountability for Netanyahu is not going to end uh, in Israel. It'll be a new uh, political challenge for him. Lena, thank you. That was Lena Khatib. Now here's Isabella Jewell with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. The board at the artificial intelligence firm OpenAI are facing a growing backlash over their sacking of CEO Sam Altman. In a letter, hundreds of employees questioned their director's competence and called for them to resign. Altman has moved to Microsoft since his ousting over the weekend. South Korea and the UK will discuss a new free trade agreement during a three-day visit to London by South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul. After a red carpet welcome by King Charles, Yoon will meet with British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The leaders are also expected to sign a new diplomatic accord. Papua New Guinea's tallest volcano remains active after it erupted on Monday afternoon, sending ash up to 15 kilometres into the air. The Pacific Island nation's Geohazards Management Division downgraded the severity of the eruption at Mount Ulawoon, but said it would continue indefinitely. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Isabella. Turning our attention to Ukraine now, and yesterday US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin made a surprise visit to Kyiv in a high-profile push to keep money and weapons flowing, even as US and international resources are stretched by the new global risks raised by the Israel-Hamas war. Olga Tokaruk is Monocle's Kyiv correspondent, and she's with me in the studio now. Um, Olga, before we get on to Austin's visit, can we uh, get an update from you on the latest on the conflict in Ukraine? Uh, hi, I'm happy to be here again in the Monocle studio. Well, actually, uh, maybe I would like to start that today is a really big day in Ukraine's recent history. It's the 10th anniversary of uh, the Revolution of Dignity. And yesterday there was uh, the U.S. Defense Secretary in Kyiv. Today there are more foreign dignitaries. There is Boris Pistorius, who is Germany's Minister of Defense. And there is also Charles Michel from the European Union and the Moldovan Prime Minister Maya Sandu. So, uh, you know, um, it's a day that changed the course of Ukraine's history, actually, um, and I was there at uh, Maidan from the day one 
Um, and many people perceive that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a response to this popular protest. Um, I was going to come come on to this, but if we talk about it first, I mean, yeah, it was a huge protest. We all remember it. And there were multiple Western politicians, the likes of you know Hillary Clinton went and visited the protesters in the square. Uh, and that seemed to really irk Putin in particular, that the fact that the West had really kind of supported those protests, that they sort of lost face in it all. Is it just, do you, th- you said it's the most significant recent moment in Ukraine's history. Do you think that that was the huge turning point in all of this? Yeah, well, uh, I think it was Victoria Nuland, actually, not Hillary Clinton, who visited uh, Maidan in 2013. Well, you know, Russian government, Russian propaganda really exaggerated the extent of uh, the support or uh, the role of Western or US uh, governments behind the protest. Uh, As a person who was there, who was there also during the Orange Revolution in 2004, uh, I've seen with my own eyes how people mobilized and and that it was a bottom-up movement. Uh, So, you know, Russia then, of course, use use this, the presence of uh, Western officials uh, that in Kyiv or those who are expressing their support to uh, Ukrainian protesters as an excuse to launch its aggression, to launch its invasion, because it, sa- it said it, it felt threatened. It also questioned the genuinity of uh, this protest movement. It said it was orchestrated and uh, coordinated by the West. It wasn't genuine. It wasn't something that Ukrainians wanted, that they were manipulated by the West. Uh, but it is just, you know, it's just an excuse. Russia, mm. in the same manner, tried to justify its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which can't be justified by any action of uh, other country. And how are Ukrainians marking the anniversary today? Uh, well, uh, people on social media are sharing a lot of photos and, and videos and, you know, they remember how it started. They are saying that, yes, it was a historic moment that shaped the modern history of Ukraine. There is uh, an understanding that, um, yes, Ukraine had to pay a huge price for the choice its people made. Uh, but there is also an understanding that somehow that was the beginning of Ukraine's fight for its independence. Very often the current war in Ukraine is called by Ukrainians war for independence. And uh, people perceive that the 21st November of 2013 was the start of that war for independence when people for the first time said, no, we want to break the ties with Russia. We do not want uh, to agree with the decision of then President Yanukovych to turn uh, away from the agreement with the European Union. Now Ukraine is an EU candidate country. Mm. Uh, Ukraine had to pay a huge price for this. But uh, there is a firm belief in the Ukrainian society that, you know, that choice was right. There is a very strong support for the EU membership. It's more than 80 percent. And turning now to the present and the future as well. So uh, the meeting yesterday, uh, we had the meeting of new Foreign Secretary David Cameron as well to uh, visit to Kyiv last week. How are Ukrainians feeling about the level of support that they're getting from the international community? Because obviously the last few weeks attention has been diverted. uh, But what's the feeling? Well, I think there are some worries in Ukraine, obviously, that the Western support might uh, decline or uh, might not be as strong as it used to be. Uh, to be frank, it wasn't sufficient, even in this present uh, shape and form, you know, the the limited success of Ukrainian counteroffensive is partially due to the fact that Ukraine did not receive all the weapons it needed. It did not receive fighter jets as yet. And without air superiority, it's very difficult to go and recapture territories that are under Russian occupation. So uh, there was already a feeling that unfortunately, the support is not enough, that there is only support for Ukraine not to lose, but not to win the war. And now, of course, as the US elections loom on the horizon, uh, and there are debates in the Congress about the funding for Ukraine, you know, the package that has not been approved uh, with further 
the for the military assistance. So of course there are worries. You know how how long can you can Ukraine count on the support of its uh, Western uh, partners? Because it is crucial to Ukraine's victory. There is no question that Ukrainians will continue fighting and resisting and do whatever they can. And actually, Ukraine has been ramping up its own defense production. So now, for example, uh, 200 Ukrainian companies manufacture drones for the Ukrainian army, which at the beginning of war was only a tiny fraction. Ukrainian-made drones were only a tiny fraction of all drones that Ukraine had. So Ukraine is ramping up the defense production, but still it is very much reliant on Western military, but also financial assistance to sustain its economy. Olga, thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Become a Monocle Magazine subscriber today and enjoy 10% off any annual subscription. It's time to get a truly global view that's upbeat and optimistic. Monocle has plenty more in store for 2023 that will keep you informed, entertained and, of course, ahead of the game. With a global roster of correspondents and bureau, we deliver stories that you won't find elsewhere. Expect insights on everything from diplomacy and design to art and architecture and more. Sign up today and you'll receive 10 issues and seasonal specials full of inspiration. Visit monocle.com slash subscribe and enter the code RADIO10 to redeem this offer. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. To Taiwan now, where the country's two main opposition parties appear to be on the brink of announcing an alliance. The leader of one would run for president in January's election. The leader of the other would be his running mate. VP and ruling party candidate Lai Chingdu said today that the election is about whether Taiwan keeps moving forward on the road to democracy or walks into the embrace of China. The pair of us represent a trustworthy direction for Taiwan. The globe is changing politically. Taiwan's peace and security in the Indo-Pacific is now the focus of the international community. The world is watching this election. Christian Shepard, the Washington Post China correspondent based in Taipei, has been covering the candidate registration this week. Christian, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what can you tell us about this potential pact and the state of the race? Well, it seems to be quite uncertain at this moment. Although they did announce an agreement um, between the two candidates, one from the main opposition, the nationalist Kuomintang, and the other from the Taiwan's People's Party, There's been a lot of disagreement about how that will go forward. And over the weekend, they may have called it off over disagreements about polling data. So it's still up in the air and we only have a few days until registration closes for the candidates. And do ordinary voters in Taiwan feel like this is a sort of existential choice uh, in terms of their democracy? It's certainly being framed that way. I mean, you have the... um, Lighting the talking about this being about a vote between democracy and um, authoritarianism. Then you have the opposition talking about this being a vote between war and peace. I think for a lot of people, they're really just trying to work out which candidate they can trust most to kind of keep uh, a lid on tensions and to deal well with Beijing and the United States to make sure that we don't see another flare up like has happened in recent months. And on those tensions, do the parties have very different military policies? Surprisingly, there's not a huge amount 
of clarity on just how different they would be. I mean, the Democratic Progressive Party, the that's uh, Leitinger's party. They certainly support stronger um, efforts to bolster Taiwan's defense and have been increasing defense spending. But the opposition has also said that they wouldn't necessarily roll back any of those measures. Um, you know, increasing defense spending is something that is very um, kind of at the forefront of many people's minds in Taiwan. So it's difficult for any candidates to come out and say that they would uh, really roll back the increases that have happened in recent years. And on diplomatic uh, power, Lai Ching's uh, running mate, Ko Bai Kim, has said this. While stationed in the United States, I stood firm, handled issues appropriately, maintained balance in a complex strategic environment, improved Taiwan-US relations, and allowed other like-minded countries to stand with Taiwan and support Taiwan's international participation. Show by Kim there. How crucial is building and maintaining international support for the next government? Well, it's certainly been a major focus of this government and would be a major focus of Lai if he were to win. I mean, that's part of why he chose Xiao. She's very well respected in Washington. She's had a very high profile. Um, If it were not to be Lai, then there could be a change in tack. Uh, The opposition, Kuomintang, have certainly um, focused more on building a relationship with China, um, building up economic ties, Uh, And to some extent, they would prioritize those over the internationalization of the Taiwan issue. So I think um, it depends on on who wins as to whether or not that will continue. And turning to sort of the soft power side, you know, we've got a state visit here today to the UK of the uh, president of South Korea. South Korea in the past decade has made huge, uh, you know, efforts around the world to increase ties with the likes of K-pop and their cinema. Is there any mood or talk in the election that, you know, as well as the direct government to government, whoever comes in uh, and takes power, they have to make sure that people around the world understand Taiwan uh, and the position it's in and want to support it as well? I mean, Taiwan is always trying to get its message out, regardless of which government is in power. Um, it's certainly, you know, they've had a lot of help from that by the war in Ukraine, by general concern about Chinese behavior. Um, but there are also other sort of softer measures. I mean, Taiwan famously is the source of bubble tea and um, has sort of made increasing efforts to kind of promote its culture, become a tourist destination, um, to kind of reverse the situation of a few years ago where often people are very unclear about just where is Taiwan, what is its history. Um, so they've certainly made inroads into that uh, attempt. Christian Shepherd, thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. <laughs> Now, the European Film Academy has revealed the nominees for the main categories of the 36th European Film Awards, which takes place on the 9th of December in Berlin. 
Jonathan Glazer's harrowing Holocaust drama The Zone of Interest leads the nominations with five nods, including Best Film and Best Director. The film won the Cannes Grand Prix and has been selected as the UK's official entry for the 2024 Oscars in the Best International Feature category. Culture journalist David Murray-Quand can tell us more. David, thank you for joining us. Firstly, for anyone who hasn't heard of these awards, what are they and how important are they in the awards pantheon? Hi, Vincent. Well, they're they're essentially the European Oscars, and uh, they're frequently overlooked, and they honour the greatest achievements in in European cinema. And uh, with regards to to how important they are, well, most of the nominees and the winners of the the EFAs are later on found in the nominees and indeed winners of the the Golden Globes and the Oscars, specifically in the uh, international feature category. So they they do matter, uh, and specifically this year because it's a it's quite a banner year. And this year, Zone of Interest leads the pack. It seems timely with the rise of anti-Semitism once again. Uh, why has it been so heavily nominated? Do you think? I mean, like you say, because of the the rise of anti-Semitism, it's a depressingly timely film, but also because it is, as you said, this harrowing drama and a very disturbing, very audacious film, uh, which which follows this uh, Auschwitz camp commander and his wife who who build this dream life with their family in their home situated on the other side of the concentration wall camp and um and it, it's 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 very very impressive in the way it deals with essentially the banality of evil and for his first film in in over a decade now Jonathan Glazer's film is is genuinely one of the the best films of the year i mean it's released in 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 most cinemas next year at the beginning of next year but it is quite a staggering achievement and as you said all five nods including best film and best director are incredibly Merited. And what are the other big contenders in the awards? Well, it can be really narrowed down to about five. So there is the zone of interest. Uh, there's the Italian film uh, Me Captain, um, the uh, the Finnish rom com by Aki Kurismaki called Fallen Leaves. But the two of the other main favourites are the uh, Cannes Palme d'Or winner uh, Justin Trier's Anatomy of a Fall, um, which has uh, been making headlines and considered by many as one of the best films of the year, and uh, Agnieszka Holland's Green Border, which won the Special Jury Prize in Venice this year and that has that is genuinely one which will probably uh, feature quite heavily on the awards list this year and looking at uh, all the nominees how healthy does the european film industry feel and and about the diversity of the stories being told what does it tell us about those it's incredibly diverse and it's it's doing very very well i mean um and and there are a great many films also like uh, vincent must die and uh, monny manning walker's how to have sex um which is uh, a, an incredible achievement for a, for a first time filmmaker it's it it also just represents uh, in a big way this year some of the um, anxieties of um, of Europe, specifically with, with Green Border. Um, I mean, again, like The Zone of Interest, a very emotionally devastating film, which which serves in, in its own way as an indictment of a continuing crisis that's, that's happening in Europe. And Can it's you a film explain that... what the plot of the film is, just for anyone that doesn't know? Absolutely. Well, I mean, like the, the title Green Border, it refers to, to this no man's land 
between uh, Belarus and Poland. And there you, you follow these refugees from the Middle East and Africa who are desperately trying to reach the European Union and who find themselves trapped in this kind of hellish to and fro that's overseen between both the Belarusian government and the Polish one. And these refugees are allured to the border with the promise of, of safe passage. But in reality, they're, they're pawns in, in what could be called a rigged game, all orchestrated by uh, the Belarusian um, leader, uh, Alexander Lukashenko. And, um, and neither side claims responsibility for them and, and condemns the, the refugees to this horrific kind of in limbo. And it's it's Agnieszka Holland's best film to date, and that's saying something considering her her previous track record with films like Europa Europa or In Darkness, and um, and this film has come under fire from um, pro Poland's far right government with the justice minister having compared it to uh, Nazi propaganda uh, even before having seen the film, which is never a, a great sign, um, and and this backlash. Um, uh, because the the migrant crisis uh, along the the Poland Belarus border is a, is a, still a highly contentious issue, and this backlash has led to a great amount of hate speech for Agnieszka Holland, um, and there are calls for her to be expelled from Poland, uh, and even her sales agent announced that the the company had been forced to disable comments on social media pages because they were being targeted by right-wing groups. Um, so the director has been um, joined by several European filmmakers and the Federation of European Screen Directors for, for supporting the film and and speaking out against uh, injustice and oppression. But it's definitely um, a, a very important film and one, once again, like um, the, the Zone of Interest by Jonathan Glazer, even if that is more of a historical drama, it, it, it very much reveals these, these anxieties that are still at the forefront of uh, of the European headlines. And finally, just briefly, obviously the way that movies are distributed has changed so dramatically in the past few years, particularly affected by the pandemic and streaming services. Now it seems that movie makers want to do deals with the streamers to get their uh, films out uh, more than sort of looking at the cinema side. Does that seem like something that's going to help European cinema get more exposure? Because these films might have had tiny screenings in the United States, for instance. But now if they're on Netflix or Prime or anything like that, does it make them greater contenders when it comes to Oscars and Golden Globes? It's an interesting question. I mean, over over the years, like the the the, the fact that these films show up on um, on streaming platforms uh, quite quickly after their theatrical release, does mean that um, you know awards um, do kind of take notice of them. And yes, it is it is disappointing because obviously uh, a theatrical release is is obviously the 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 best way to see these films. But at the end of the day, these films need to be seen. And with films like The Zone of Interest, I mean a uh, 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 the big screen is the only way to watch a film which you know has that kind of harrowing nature and also with the sound design but really as long as they get seen and sometimes well a deal with streamers might be the only way sometimes for more international audiences in the US for example to to see them in the first place so really it does just it does just come down to as long as the film gets seen, as long as the message comes across, and as long as there is a a diversity in um, in 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 viewing habits, because these are films that might go by the wayside for certain international dis distributors, but um, they they really need to be seen. And and this year's uh, European Film Awards have shown now more than ever that there is a, a, a richness of an offering that really deserves uh, not to go unnoticed.
David Moriquand, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Christy O'Grady. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>